This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Joshua Molina, and I'm all alone. Can you believe they let me have the keys to the place? I've got the podcast all to myself, which means I could say anything. But I'm a principled man, so I won't. That's what my Twitter account is for. Instead, I'm here to tell you that we have quite an episode for you this week. Now that all the holidays have been celebrated, and it's almost the new year, and you're probably sipping hot chocolate and lounging away the final days of 2023, we thought we'd give you a few stories that are just a bit more contemplative, a little more thoughtful than usual. So, we begin in the coziest of places, the Archive, our series highlighting the collections of the National Library of Israel. This time, we're telling the incredible story of how Franz Kafka's Hebrew notebooks ended up not only in Jerusalem, but also in a, dare we say, Kafkaesque battle of ownership. Then, because the war still sadly rages on in Israel, we have a brief interview with Gadi Taub, one of the hosts of an excellent new video podcast called Israel Update, which you can now find on tablet at tabletmag.com slash Update. If you're looking for an unparalleled inside perspective into the war and updates from the ground, Gadi has you covered. And finally, we're bringing you the latest installment of Across the USA, in which we travel to the Great White North to get a new perspective on North American Jewish life from the very fine people of Montreal. It's a story of bagels, Yiddish, and of course, Leonard Cohen. So sit back, relax, and start your New Year's countdown with us. You'll hear from the three of us again in 2024, poo-poo. Shalom, friends. Today, we're bringing you another installment of The Archive, our series exploring the collection of the National Library of Israel. This time around, we're learning all about Franz Kafka, his feelings on Zionism, his attempts to learn Hebrew, and the labyrinthine story of who owns his manuscripts and the tangled web in which his manuscripts were trapped. A small, unassuming notebook. It's clearly a notebook of someone trying to learn Hebrew. And here are some of the words that we see. Hishtomim, he was perplexed. We see hishtateh. He acted foolishly. Choshech, darkness. If you see makak, it's a cockroach, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Whose notebook is this? That's one of the seven remaining Hebrew notebooks by Franz Kafka. I'm Liel Leibowitz, and welcome back to the final installment of The Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. And again, I'll be guiding you across history and the globe through this library's amazing collection. The man you just heard is Dr. Stefan Litt. He's the curator of the library's humanities collection. And he was showing me the library's Kafka collection, which is filled with notebooks and manuscripts and even drawings that belonged to the literary legend. Franz Kafka, of course, is the 20th century writer of surreal, dark, even dreamlike fiction, who is wildly famous today, but was never really known in his time because he barely published what he wrote. 
his extreme anxiety and debilitating self-doubt led him to lock his manuscripts away from sight, or worse, to burn them himself. Now, the notebooks that Dr. Litt was showing me were filled with Kafka's Hebrew practice, which I want you to keep in mind as this segment continues, because unlike his anxiety and self-doubt, his Hebrew studies leave physical proof of his relationship to his Jewish identity. And years after his death, this identity would come front and center in, unironically, an international legal trial centered around who Kafka's Hebrew notebooks and other possessions actually belong to. The year Kafka began writing in these Hebrew notebooks was 1917. At that time, Kafka was in his early 30s, living in his hometown of Prague, having finished law school and working as a lawyer in a well-regarded insurance firm. Now, this is all typical for precocious German-speaking Czech Jews like Kafka. But after work, when others would go out and prost beers with friends and play cards and search for the right Frau... Kafka would stay up late, without wife, without kids, introverted, frail, his beady eyes riled with insomnia, riding furiously through the night in the privacy of his own home. Something must have been working, because by this point, he's already stored away the most important masterpieces of his writing. For instance, the novel America, the famous novel The Trial, unfinished. All the novels are unfinished. But he was going on, producing, producing, tiny pieces, short stories, longer stories. And he was also a prolific writer of letters, including to his own stereotypically Jewish family. Here's Lit talking about one of the library's prized Kafka artifacts, a cute little letter that Kafka wrote to his dad. We have the famous letter to the father, which is an important and heavy piece of a son-father relationship. His father was a shopkeeper, not a man of literature, not showing interest in the literature of his son. And being a kind of family dictator, whose first interest was to keep his shop a prosperous company, guaranteeing the survival of the family. And there was, according to Kafka, what he describes in this letter, there was just fulfilling commands and to do what needs to be done, and not a single piece beyond that. Which sounds almost like a theological argument, right? Is he also, in a way kicking up against this sort of tradition is like, why are we keeping any of this? Yes, exactly. And he's blaming his father in this letter. You definitely went to the synagogue, but you were just there because you had to be there. Otherwise, it wouldn't be smart for your standing in the community, in the city, with your business and so on. This is, um, it doesn't come from the heart. And you took me uh, several times to synagogue. And when I was asking questions, you couldn't really answer me because you were not there. And you have many, many other accusations in this very, very long letter. And so this letter was never received by his father. I think this would have blown up the family forever. Let's not exaggerating. Reading this long and kind of disturbing letter, you get a sense of how sensitive Kafka really was, of how much he bottled up his emotions inside, of how his father rang loud in his psyche. Here, let me read you what Kafka wrote to his father in his own words. 
I admit that we fight with each other, but there are two kinds of combat. The chivalrous combat, in which independent opponents pit their strength against each other, and there is the combat of vermin, which not only stings, but on top of it, suck your blood in order to sustain their own life. That's what you are. You are unfit for life. <laughs> That's light stuff. Still, the letter to the father is an important piece of the puzzle of Kafka's Jewish identity. In short, he was conflicted. Sure, he was born Jewish and lived amongst a Jewish milieu, but he didn't like going to shul just to go through the motions. And around the same time that Kafka wrote this letter, there were also some rumblings. Anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe. There was talk of this whole new Zionism thing of becoming the new Jew, strong, upright, different than a wimpy lawyer slash writer who was scared of his own shadow. Enter Kafka's best friend from law school, Max Brod. Brod was a pillar in Kafka's life. He was a well-known writer and one of the only people Kafka shared his own manuscripts with. Brod was also Jewish, but confident, extroverted, much more of a new Jew than France, which matched Brod's interest in, well, of course, Zionism. So we know that Kafka was looking from a side to the, in his eyes, maybe weird activities of probably his best friend, Max Brod, who was an ardent Zionist. Max Brod was convinced the future of Judaism is in Zionism and one day we have to live in the land of Israel. And for that purpose, we have to be prepared. But Kafka wasn't convinced. Kafka is, until his last days, he was not really a big follower of the Zionist movement. I mean, he from time to time visited events. We know that he was attending the Zionist World Congress in Vienna in 1913. He was a bit disappointed. So he couldn't really be as ardent as Max Brod was in this regard. A bit disappointed is putting it nicely. In a private letter, Kafka wrote that, I admire Zionism and am nauseated by it. Now, to be fair, he felt nauseated in his own skin, not to mention within an ideological crowd, but Kafka still pursued the Zionist dream in at least one way. So, in contrary to Max Brod, who maybe studied very seriously Hebrew only when he came here in 1939, Franz Kafka started much earlier and was not just fooling around with Hebrew, he, he took it very seriously. I mean, that's a statement. Studying Hebrew in those days is not just something that you would do like uh, showing interest in old Japanese uh, graphic arts or so. I don't know. Kafka actually was able to reach an advanced level because we have another notebook that we found three years ago, which clearly shows that he was able to write small pieces about current everyday occurrences like a teacher strike in Jerusalem and what the demands of the teachers and why the government is unable to give them more money and so on. And in Hebrew. In Hebrew, yes, absolutely. And he even uh, put a note at the end, a personal note to his last private teacher. I made so many mistakes by purpose in order to keep you busy until our next lesson. Don't be angry with me. I'm angry enough for the both of us. <laughs> Signing with the famous K letter, okay? So like we saw at the top of this episode, Kafka learned a lot of Hebrew words that meant something to him personally, like makak, cockroach, 
and choshech, darkness. And he also learned shachefet, which in Hebrew means tuberculosis. Why tuberculosis? Because in 1917, when these Hebrew notebooks are dated, Kafka was diagnosed with it. And at that time, tuberculosis was one of the leading causes of death in Europe. And it also had no cure. Because it's highly contagious, the insurance firm he worked at didn't want him anywhere nearby. So they released him on pension. This meant that when he was feeling healthy enough, Kafka had much more free time to pursue his true passions. Apparently, not just writing, but language learning. Now, why exactly was Kafka studying Hebrew? Because like Dr. Litt said, it was a statement to do so. Sure, it may have had something to do with his complex relationship to Judaism. Dr. Litt did show me biblical words that Kafka had jotted down in order of appearance in the Bible, meaning he must have been reading along. But Kafka was also studying Hebrew because both tuberculosis and anti-Semitism were spreading across his reality. So despite his nausea about Zionism itself, he actually fantasized about making Aliyah, about moving to Israel, getting healthy and starting a new life for himself. And we know that in maybe it was 1922, he was actively thinking about moving to Palestine, giving up his old profession, not being a lawyer anymore. He wasn't active anyway in that because he was too sick already, also too sick in order to come here. But he was dreaming about opening a vegetarian restaurant with his girlfriend and he would be the waiter there. And uh, I mean, is it just a fantasy? Is it... Uh... Tel Aviv lost a great establishment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Kafka's falafel. <laughs> Kafka's falafel and salad. While it would have made for a killer short story, Kafka's falafel and salad never really came to be. Kafka died from tuberculosis two years later in 1924 at the young age of 40. But Kafka's death, just like in a good Kafka story, is just the beginning. Because remember, Kafka never published his great works. So how the hell do we know about him today? On his deathbed, Kafka bequeathed his estate to his dear friend from law school, the Zionist, Max Brod. But he gave Brod very clear instructions, burn my papers, will you, Javer, buddy? Now listen, Brad wasn't a dummy. He knew Kafka was a frickin' once-in-a-lifetime literary genius. So he simply refused Kafka's dying wish. And after his best friend passed away, Brod started editing and compiling and releasing Kafka's works to the world. But in 1939, 15 years after Kafka's death, the Nazis took power in Prague. So Broad gathered up all of Kafka's manuscripts, as well as his own, and caught the very last train out of there. And he eventually settled in, you guessed it, Israel. Until his own death, Broad remained faithful to his dear friend's literary archive. He actually gave many manuscripts to Kafka's niece in London, who donated them to Oxford's library. But when Broad himself died, what remained of Kafka's estate got trapped in a surreal shall we say, Kafkaesque, litigious labyrinth that even Kafka himself couldn't have dreamt of. Max Brod kept all these materials with him and he passed away in Tel Aviv in 1968. In his last will from 61, he appointed his secretary, who was a close friend of him, Ilse Esterhoffe, to be the executor of his will. 
and to make sure that the papers will arrive to a public institution. And then he's adding the last sentence in this paragraph. Moreover, she is entitled to act freely according to her understanding what's best for the materials. And that gave her kind of a carte blanche not to do at all anything with all these materials. She kept them in bank vaults in her private home and she even sold some of the very precious Kafka items. I think the most spectacular one was uh, the auction of the manuscript of the trial, the famous novel in uh, 1988 in London. Okay, that's a lot to chew on, so it's worth repeating. First, Max Brod brought Kafka's manuscripts to Tel Aviv. Then, when he died, he bequeathed his own estate, which included the Kafka papers, to his secretary slash friend and also slash lover, Esther Hoff. He wanted her to get his estate to a public institution like the National Library. But he worded his will in such a way that Esther Hoff could technically hold on to Broad and thus Kafka's manuscripts herself. She locked Kafka's papers away from sight, started selling some off, and even believed she could bequeath them to her two daughters, which she actually did. After she passed away in 2007, there was a long legal battle between her family, her heirs, and the National Library about the rightful ownership of all these materials. All this is very important to us because actually we are mentioned in the will. It says clearly she has to make sure that the materials come to a public institution and the first place is us. Our position was that the task of an executor of a will cannot be passed from generation to generation. Of course, the family said, of course, we can do that. And most likely they were keen to sell all these materials to the German National Literature Archive in Marbach, which is also a nice place and it's a public institution. But needless to say that we wanted to have it. Like in our last segment of the archive about Napoleon and the Rosetta Stone, the question of who do these historical artifacts really belong to rings loud. Because, well, did the Hoff sisters actually deserve Kafka's manuscripts because Max Broad had bequeathed them to their mother? Or did Israel really deserve them because Broad had said they did? Now, Kafka never met any one of the Hoffs, nor did he ever set foot in Israel. He had a tentative relationship with Zionism at best, and had asked Broad to burn his works, not to move with them across the Mediterranean. And what about the Czech Republic, where Kafka was actually from? Shouldn't they be the true home for his estate? Or what about Germany, the country whose language he wrote in and whose national library is best equipped to research such manuscripts? The German National Literature Archive already housed the manuscript of The Trial, which a private donor had paid millions for. And like Litt mentioned, the Hoffs were aiming to sell the literature archive even more documents. Now, in the eyes of many, some particular historical events excluded these European nations from becoming the rightful guardians of the Jew Franz Kafka's works. As thought Philip Roth, who in a letter to the New York Times wrote that if he, meaning Kafka, had lived on, he would have been murdered at Auschwitz as a Jew. His three sisters were incinerated there 
And there is little reason to think that the author of the most important work in 20th century German literature would have been spared by the German nation. An acquaintance of Broad's, Professor Otto Dov Kolka of Hebrew University, put it best, the Germans don't have a very good history of taking care of Kafka's things. They didn't take good care of his sisters. They're not wrong. And the Supreme Court of Israel agreed. Because in the end, where Kafka's estate ended up was, to a large degree, based on his Jewish identity. And while he may have had a turbulent relationship with that identity, don't we all, his Hebrew notebooks and dreams of moving to Israel helped reinforce it in the eyes of the Jewish state. And you won that battle. We won that, yes. So today, more than 50 years after Broad's death and nearly 100 years after Kafka's, a good portion of the Kafka archive is housed at the National Library of Israel. And that's certainly fine by me. But what does this whole legal fiasco actually say about Kafka? Remember, he was so self-conscious, so insecure in his own skin, and in the end, his legacy was decided for him by the state. Kafka is prescient here. I want to read you one last quote. This one is from The Trial, where a man wakes up one day to be accused of crimes he can't quite understand. Let me remind you, Kafka writes, of the old legal maxim. A suspect is better off moving than at rest, for one at rest may be on the scales without knowing it, being weighed with all his sins. So sure, the Supreme Court ruling was basically a statement that, because Kafka is a Jew, his work should be housed in the Jewish state. But one more question remains open. Was Kafka a Jewish writer? That's maybe the big dispute among scholars. If Kafka's writing is indeed a Jewish writing or is it not? If you look really in detail on his writings, I think you will hardly find the word Jew or Jewish in all his texts. But of course, he had all these massive bases of Jewish culture with him when he was writing. And I think this is the main argument of scholars who claim that, of course, Franz Kafka is a Jewish author because his way of thinking and putting things together sometimes not in a very easy way, not, not very understandable way. And this is exactly what's so Jewish in it. Now, if only there was a, a word inspired by literature to describe long, protracted legal battles. <laughs> Stefan, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm Leah Leibowitz, signing off from a wonderful journey to the treasures of the great National Library of Israel. Gadi Taub is an Israeli historian and political commentator. 
His new video podcast with the Hudson Institute's Michael Duran is called Israel Update, and you can find it today on Tablet Magazine at tabletmag.com slash Israel Update. Gadi joined us to talk about the critical eye he and Michael bring to conversations about the war, diplomacy, and life on the ground, and to share a clip from their most recent episode. Gadi Tab, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Leo. The pleasure is all mine. Now, we are very excited to debut your show, the show you co-host with Michael Duran, Israel Update, on Tablet, on the Tablet Podcasting family here on Unorthodox. But tell us, what's the origin story here? How did the show come about? Well, first, I heard Mike speak on some conference that we can't disclose because it's a place where Arabs and Israelis met. So it was all secret. And at that time, I was still smoking. So I had the hottest news because I was the only Westerner still smoking. And in the smoker's corner, you got all the interesting information. But one of the most interesting things, and this is how I started writing in the Aretz, by the way, Leo, because I came back with a story from the smoker's corner in that, in that conference. So much of journalism would be lost now that people quit smoking. No one gets reporting done anymore. Yeah, exactly. So I heard Mike speak in that conference, and I was so impressed with his talk that I uh, approached him at the end, and nothing came out of it. And then he said to some friend, this Israeli guy with earrings approached me. What does he want? And then I, had a, I heard him again, and I tried again. And then we started talking. And we discovered that we, we feel very much the same in our separate countries. We felt disillusioned with the uh, dominance of regressive elites. And yet we were not entirely comfortable with everything that was going on the right. And we were uncomfortable with the same uh, issues. And then we discovered we like each other's sense of humor. So we, we started speaking a lot. And then very arrogantly and narcissistically, we thought our conversations are really interesting. Maybe other people would want to hear them. And then came the war. And as the, the war came, I was talking to Dave Rubin, uh, who was here in Israel, and I hosted a, a gig that he did. And we discussed doing a show on Rumble. And so it was an and idea. Those of our listeners who don't, who don't know about this, this is the platform which is sort of the alternative to YouTube. Yeah. Free and unfettered exchange of ideas via video. And so we talked about this at some unspecified future. And then the war started and Dave called me and said, look, you got to start doing this. And I called Mike and said, let's do it together because, you know, I'm an Israeli and I sometimes get carried away, as you know very well about Israelis, with all the details of what's going on here. And Mike said, I'll be the mediator because I can, I can translate to American audiences. I can reflect to you what they would not understand. And then, as you know, America is involved in everything here. So Mike's uh, unparalleled knowledge of the American perspective on the Middle East gives our show, I think, this double perspective that I think is fruitful and is completely missing from the American media because, you know, there's a food chain. It's like in America, what goes on in the New York Times then dictates the agenda to CNN. And so it's the same with news about Israel, only with Haaretz playing the role of the New York Times. I will say it, it is it is a terrific show. I've, I've been a fan and a listener long before we started this collaboration. It really does bring 
you know, unparalleled, insightful, and kind of insidery perspective. But but here's my question, you know, Mike knows a lot about the Middle East and about Israel. He speaks good Hebrew. He understands Israeli politics. You know a lot about American politics. You study this in, in American universities. You really have a very in-depth look at, at our political system and, and, and culture. But I assume that there are moments in the show when you are reminded of the fact that there are really some nuances that only an American or only an Israeli could get. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so so we we correct each other. And I think we keep learning from each other in that respect. And since we have similar sensibilities, we are interested enough in what the other party has to say. And so we thought that the first and most important thing that we can do is we we are entering a conversation that's very monolithic about Israel. And Tablet is one of the only places that, that breaks out of this monolith where you only get either conservative, religious, right-wing extremism, I don't like the word, but people far to our right, or you get this progressive view that has no standing in Israel anymore. So what happened is the way Israel is reported in the press in America is just, it's like a raft that's drifting away from a continent and, and and shouting at the continent that it's drowning. You know, it's <laughs> it's like unbelievable. They don't they don't have a clue on what's going on. And then American diplomats come up with these complicated schemes. Now, we, Mike and I just discussed on our last show the idea. Mike said, you know, the American the American administration is it doesn't think it can implement the two state solution anytime soon. But it does think that it could use this like a bowling ball to separate Bibi's coalition. Because then, if they put it on the table, Bibi says no, then Bibi's opponents will say, look, Netanyahu is endangering... This is Martin Indyk, right, on Twitter. Netanyahu is endangering Israel's interest because he's leading to a, a rift with the United States. And then the plan goes, says Mike, that someone like Gantz will pick this up to overthrow Netanyahu. Except that that it's too smart by half, because if you look at what's going on in Israel on the ground, you would know that nobody can touch the two-state solution now. It's, it's completely toxic. So the whole plan rests on some conception that makes sense if you read about Israel in Aretz, in Aretz in English or in the New York Times, but it doesn't make sense if you listen to actual press conferences last Thursday. So let us now do the right thing and go to a view of Israel and America and BB and the war and Gaza and everything else you want to know. Here is a taste of Israel Update. So, uh, Gandhi, the, the, the American policy toward uh, the day after in in Gaza. What the Americans are, are dictating to the Israelis is we have to have a revitalized Palestinian Authority working together with the Saudis and the Qataris and the I don't know who Emirati, uh, 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 Emiratis to uh, rule over Palestinian society in, Ga- in the Gaza Strip that will be completely shorn of any connection to Hamas is a total fantasy. This is this is not going to happen, and I, 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 this this cannot happen 
in the way that the Americans are saying it, because there's no revitalized Palestinian authority that's waiting in the wings, ready to take over it. There's no Palestinian society that isn't that isn't in 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 Gaza that isn't totally penetrated by Hamas that's go, that's that's waiting to be taken over by the Palestinian Authority and won't work to subvert the Palestinian uh, uh, Authority. The restrictions the Israelis the Americans are putting on the Israelis are going to ensure that the Israelis themselves cannot be the ones to separate the Palestinian society from Hamas. Uh, so it's all pie in the sky. It's complete fantasy. Now, the problem, Israelis will typically hear this kind of thing and they'll say, ah, these Americans are very naive. But they're not naive, Gadi. They're cynical. It's not the same thing. They're using this uh, pie in the sky moral language about, the, you know, we're, we're going to build democracy in, in, in Gaza, just like they built democracy in Afghanistan, democracy in Iraq. The, the, uh, toppled Hosni Mubarak to build a greater democracy in Egypt. How have those projects been going? Democracy in Gaza. We, uh, when I was in the White House, we 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 pushed uh, uh, we pushed the elections in uh, in, the, in the Palestinian Authority that gave us Hamas in, in, Ga in Gaza. So the the idea that we're going to get a better result this time uh, seems to me to be a little bit silly. However. This this pushing of insisting that the Israelis agree to the Palestinian Authority now, all of this is designed to cause trouble for Netanyahu. This is to trip him up. This is indeed to split his coalition, to cause problems for him, to topple him. He's now polling, uh, the Likud is polling at what, in the polls? Gantz's party is polling around 50%, or it's in the four, high 40s, isn't it? Or No, 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 it can't be. 30, high 30s, high 30s, sorry. Uh, not, yeah, there's a difference between Gantz himself and the party, and a difference. Yeah, between yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I got confused in my head. I was, saying, yeah. yeah, yeah, forget it. Yeah, but but he's he's leading. Yeah, the, but the Gantz's party is polling at thirty some odd seats, thirty six seats, something like that, and uh, Netanyahu's uh, party Likud is polling at like seventeen seats. Um, but yes, yeah, so who should be prime minister? Gantz is is, uh, is polling at around fifty one percent or something. I think in the last poll I saw. I should never talk about numbers because I always forget them. But anyway, the Americans are looking at that and they're thinking, let's move, let's move Netanyahu out, let's move Gantz in. That's what this is all about. And and about this, they are also being naive, Mike, not just cynical. And I'll tell you uh, why. I'll tell you are, why. Can I can I can I add one more angle to sure. this? Sorry. And that's the Saudi angle, because one of the things they're doing is they're dangling out in, in that interview with Yoni Levy. It wasn't in the clip that you just played, but uh, but they're saying, you know, you need you have to have international financing and support from the Arab world for this revitalized, revamped Palestinian authority. So this is this is a, this is this is so that Nahum Barnea and other people in the Israeli press can say we could have normalization with Saudi Arabia and the embrace of the entire Gulf world of us if it wasn't for Smutrich and Ben Gavir, that is the, 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 the right-wing elements in Netanyahu's coalition. Also not true. It's not like the Saudis are, are just dying to come hug you and kiss you. This is not. Oh, I'm not going true. to cut this and post this and translate it into Hebrew, Mike, because this is... What? What you just said, because this is so what's going on in the Israeli press, and it's so silly. But what I was going to, to mention is, look at what is happening to Gantz and Lapid, the, the opposition. Gantz is now in the coalition, but he's the contender. 
So they, the Americans are trying to construct this um, arc in which there would be demonstrations in the street against Netanyahu, a split in the coalition around the issue of the future or the post-war uh, arrangements, and then they will split guns from Netanyahu, and then there would be some members of Likud willing to desert, because the Knesset is still the same, and we have no election, willing to desert to the Gantz camp. But the problem with this is there was a press conference, and the Channel 14, very sharp uh, political correspondent, asked Gantz, do you support a Palestinian state? <laughs> and he wouldn't answer. He just wouldn't answer. It was incredibly embarrassing. And you understand completely why. All year we've been traveling across the USA with support from the Jewish Federations of North America to find stories of unique Jewish communities. This month, we wanted to try and see things a little differently, so we headed up north to Montreal, not just to eat Montreal bagels, but also to get an outside perspective on life in the USA. Liel, Stephanie, and producer Robert Scaramuccia polished their French and visited one of the oldest Jewish communities in Canada. Bloomington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But there's a man of shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the Don't touch that dial There is nothing wrong with your radio But you're no longer in the Jew-SA This month, we decided to travel to a place, a place beyond space and time, a place we call Montreal. Merci. I don't understand how this traffic sign works. Have you ever had a Montreal bagel? Is that just a bagel in Montreal? Nope. Oh, Robert, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> People feel really strongly about this, Robert. So we put the famous Montreal bagel a live test. Why are we here visiting our neighbors up north? Well, because the story of Canadian Jews and Jews in Montreal in particular is a very different story from the one we American Jews tell ourselves about our own community. In America, the plot lines are simple and well known. The Jews arrive from all over, they strive to assimilate, they become Americans, and they give their new homeland this. Of a white Christmas. And this. I like to be in America. Okay, by me in America. Everything free in America. And even this. People snap out of that Christmas spirit like it was a drunken stupor. They just wake up one morning and go, oh my God, there's a tree inside the house. In Montreal, however, it was a very different story. And it begins with the very Catholic colony of New France. If Quebec is literally a Catholic colony and its purpose is to convert people to Catholicism, its relationship with Jews is going to be ambivalent at best. This is Zev Moses, 
the founder and executive director of the Museum of Jewish Montreal, or because this is a bilingual city, more on that in a bit, the Musée de Montréal Juif. It's a stunning building in the Plateau Mont-Royal, which today is a hipster haven. If you're jonesing for a $150 pair of Lululemon yoga pants, you won't have to go far to find them. But long ago, this was the heart of Jewish Montreal, which is why we asked Zev to give us a walking tour of the neighborhood. But before there could even be a Jewish Montreal, there were wars to be fought and won, literally. Jews are not allowed in what was then New France because it was a Catholic colony, essentially. So the first Jews come when the British win the Seven Years' War in 1760, and they're connected to the Sephardic community. They start the first synagogue in Montreal, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue. According to Zev, Canada as we know it today started out as a deal between the original French Catholic colonists and the English Protestants who took over after the Seven Years' War. That deal essentially amounted to, if you don't bother us, we won't bother you, with the French and the English teaching their children their language and their religion. Jews are the first group to arrive that like messes up that paradigm. The initial Sephardic population was small enough to skate by in this system, but in the early 20th century, just like in the US, Ashkenazi Jews started arriving in Canada in droves. In Montreal in particular, first decade of the 20th century, tens of thousands start arriving in significant numbers. And we have to understand, Quebec and Montreal didn't have a, a public school system, didn't have a public hospital system or anything. Everything was run by churches. So if you went to school here, if you were English, you went to the Protestant schools. And if you were French, you went to the Catholic schools. And what happens when Jews arrive? No one knows where to put them. After a little bit of a back and forth, Jews end up in the Protestant school system. So all these Yiddish-speaking Jews end up speaking English because they go to these English Protestant schools. So, just like in the U.S., these first- and second-generation Ashkenazi immigrants try to adopt English as their first or second language. They set up a schmata industry in and around Saint Laurent Boulevard, literally driving a wedge between the French and the English sections of town. They try to become Canadians. The one problem is that no one actually knows what a Canadian is. Actually, in the early 20th century, being Canadian didn't really exist. You could be French Canadian or you could be kind of British Canadian, but the identity was tied to your ethnicity to some degree, your religion. So Jews didn't have the same entry points that French Canadians or British English Canadians had. So they really had to think about themselves. Montreal's Jews had no melting pot to just fall into. The divide between Anglophones and Francophones in Canada was so great that the novelist Hugh McLennan eventually gave it a name, The Two Solitudes. Sandwiched right in the middle, the city's Jews built up a third solitude, a self-sustaining Yiddish community with its own poets and its own schools and its own newspapers. Yiddish is the third most spoken language in the city after French and English and remains so well into the 1950s. Yiddish is able to thrive here. Um, there's a local 
literary Yiddish scene in the city that starts attracting people like Yud Yud Siegel, Melech Ravitch, Ida Maza, Rachel Korn, um, in later years, Chava Rosenfarb as well. And that scene, eventually, as new generations learn English in schools, they're grabbing that knowledge and the energy from the Yiddish-speaking community and bringing it into an English-speaking Jewish literary scene as well. We can bring that to A.M. Klein. Irving Layton is another person in that kind of generation, the kind of bridge generation towards Leonard Cohen and other writers, Mordecai Richler as well. Yiddish is still very present in Montreal. Not so much as a spoken language, outside of the city's considerable Orthodox community and the amazing Yiddish web series Yid Life Crisis, I doubt that many speak it today. But it's literally omnipresent, etched on the sides of buildings. Here, take a look. Okay, we're in front of the Yiddish Volksschule, which was the, the Jewish people's school. You can kind of see up at the top above the lintel, kind of the word school and a couple uh, Magen Davids up there. It's another school is taking over and they keep painting over the Yiddish letters and then the Yiddish letters keep coming out from under the white paint and I love it. Faced with a country and a city that didn't know what to do with them, Montreal's Jews did their own thing. They couldn't be whitewashed Canadians and they couldn't go back to the old country, so they established their own identity, which kept them kind of separate from their neighbors. And along the way, the community helped define what it meant to be Canadian, gifting Canada some of its greatest musicians, poets, and writers, including, as Zev mentioned a moment ago, Leonard Cohen, whose ancestors helped build Congregation Shara Shamayim, where Cohen himself grew up going to shul. Equally important for us Southerners, Montreal's Jews also helped define North American Jewry more generally. We're going to go around the corner into this little alleyway. We're, we're in front of the B'nai Jacob. I actually have a recording of the Chazan from this synagogue, which was considered like the Carnegie Hall of, of Chazanut in Montreal. A Chazan is a cantor who leads the songs of the prayer service. There's very few recordings from in the 1950s from shuls, as an orthodox shul. So here's Chazan Yoshua Rosenzweig, born near Krakow, moved to pre-Israel in the late 1930s, lived in Tel Aviv and Haifa, was a Chazan there for a few years, then moved here in 1947, became the Chazan at B'nai Jacob, one of the largest synagogues in the city at the time. One more piece of this 20th century identity came in the 1940s, during and after the Holocaust. And so it's interesting. Um, if we think the United States closed up its borders in advance of World War II and the Holocaust, Canada was even worse. The famous book that's written about is called None is Too Many, and that's a quote from an official. When Jewish refugees finally start coming here, after the Holocaust, Canada actually becomes one of the largest settling spots for Holocaust survivors. I, I believe after Israel and New York, Montreal has the highest concentration of survivors. That really impacts the identity of this community and how it, how it sees the world to some degree. What you have by this point is a community that knows the value of sticking together. 
and knows just how tenuous those ties to a suspicious outside world could be. And then, groovy man, the 60s happened. Un peuple qui va s'étonner lui-même de ce dont il est capable. Que je pourrais être aussi fier d'être Québécois que ce soit dans l'acceptation béate ou résignée d'une situation minoritaire, coloniale et inférieure. Starting in the 1960s, a French-Canadian separatist movement took root in Quebec with the goal of declaring the province's independence from Canada and from the British crown. It was a secular movement, not a specifically Catholic one, but that doesn't mean these descendants of New France were particularly amenable to Montreal's Jews and their English education. The rise of kind of secular French-Canadian nationalism, the movement of the indépendantistes, that would be a little bit frightening for any Jewish community, but I think it was truly scary for a lot of Jews here to see that, and this is just as Jews had made it to the middle class or above, finally made it economically. Um, Jews are finally really accepted socially too. It feels like the rug is being pulled out from under a lot of uh, the now English-speaking Jews that live here. Even when seen in the best of lights, these huge nationalist rallies calling for a resurgence of patriotic Quebecois culture had particular undertones for many Canadian Jews, especially the most recent arrivals. Is this movement anti-Semitic? It's not. Some people might say it is. There was traces for sure. Because Jews spoke English up to that time, we were really off the map for French Canadians and they were for us as well. Now, is that, does that mean there was no anti-Semitism? Absolutely not. Like, of, of course there's anti-Semitism, as there was everywhere. And because Jews and French Canadians didn't really connect with each other, plenty of stereotypes existed about Jews. That said, um, the separatist movement has, it's never going to go away, but it has died down since the late 90s. It's no longer the primary form necessarily of nationalism in Quebec. Language is still the big thing, though. That is a major, that's a major cleavage in society here. Canada often calls itself a mosaic instead of a melting pot, a bunch of solid cultural pieces fitting together, which can have its benefits. Sure, just look at all the art created by the Canadian Jews of the Third Solitude. The fact that you could be a Montreal Jew, not just a Jew from Montreal, is thanks to just how solid this community has been. People move away from Montreal and they have, it's a double diaspora. We're both in the diaspora from Israel, but also in the diaspora from, from Montreal. Um, part of being here as a Jew is like connecting to history. Being Jewish doesn't mean just looking elsewhere. There's like, there's an identity that's tied to this city that's just really cool. You can find yourself in the city itself. But there may be such a thing as too much separation. There are limits to thinking that everyone can just get along in their own little bubble, especially in a place like Canada, which has only gotten more diverse over the decades. Translation of all kinds might be a necessary thing, which involves literal language translation, of course. But just because you could say hello to your neighbor in their own language doesn't mean you won't want to kick them out if times get tough. There are deeper kinds of translation, deeper kinds of communication that go beyond language, that really show someone else where you're coming from and who you are. And I'm speaking, of course, about the most fundamental of all forms of human communication, the things that we eat. 
Now look, I'm a New Yorker, and down home, we don't take kindly to that thing the folks over yonder in Montreal call a bagel. But when in Montreal, you can't not go to Fairmount Bagels. I mean, Zev insisted. I mean, this store, what, how many square feet is here? Like maybe a hundred or something? We're in line, sitting next to all the refrigerators, and at the back of the store, there's two long ovens that have been here since the 1940s. It's a tiny place, and unlike New York, where you could walk into any bagel shop and order lox and cream cheese on a bagel with capers, tomatoes, onions, and lettuce, here, you walk up, grab a bagel, pay, and leave. No sandwiches, no trouble, no fuss. I'm eating just a, a classic, hot, fresh out of the oven sesame bagel, and the best part of it when it's at this moment is like, you take a bite and the sesame seeds just kind of spray everywhere. But not all Montreal food is smoked meat and bagels. Because in the 1960s, a lot of Moroccan Jews arrived in town. So when we were in Montreal, we just had to meet with Kat Romano, Jewish food historian and the force behind The Wandering Chew, which preserves and revitalizes Jewish food traditions through immersive culinary experiences. And the Moroccans who came to Montreal, Kat told us, changed the city's food scene in fascinating ways, like throwing parties for the Mimuna, the post-Passover celebration that Moroccan Jews observe. As Passover ends, people will open up their homes to each other, and at the center of this celebration is the Mimuna table, where they start to eat chametz again. So one of the iconic dishes of Mimuna is mufleta, which is a yeasted, thin crepe pancake that's smeared with butter and honey, and you roll it up and eat it, and that's some people's first chametz. So people spend the evening going from home to home, eating, celebrating the end of Passover and the beginning of spring. Normally, we would end our visit on that very feel-good note. I mean, what more do we need? We came, we learned the history, we listened to the music, we ate some delicious treats prepared by a diverse, gorgeous mosaic of Jews from all over the world. But there's just one more thing we had to do in Montreal. We briefly mentioned the city's greatest musical export, Leonard Cohen. He was born here in Montreal, and he's buried here. I wrote a book about him not long ago and had the privilege of a lifetime to get to know him a little bit and call him not just my Rebbe, but also my friend. And now I needed to pay one final visit. Where are we right now, Leo? It's the Jewish Cemetery here in uh, Outremont in Montreal. And I'm here to visit my Rebbe, Eliezer, better known as Leonard Cohen. I have not been up here since he passed seven years ago. I could not bring myself to do this, and here I am. I'd like to go say goodbye now. So, um, I just said hi to my friend Eliezer, who I was truly privileged to know 
not just admire as an artist, as so many of us did and do, uh, but really get to know as um, an incredible, radiant, generous, inspiring human being. And in the seven years since he left us, I, I think a lot about him and about what he would say about our world today, about American Jews today, about rising anti-Semitism, about our politics being so messed up. And um, might be a bit of a cliche, but there's this one line that I keep coming back and back and back to, which I really think is, is the anthem to... Um, to our time uh, and maybe to, to every time to every Jewish story that ever was and it's from a song appropriately called Anthem and it goes ring the bells that still could ring forget your perfect offering there's a crack a crack in everything that's how the light gets in amen to that Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Joshua Molina with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Rousquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line. That's 914-570-4869. And until next week, shalom, friends. <laughs>